أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ربي اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحلو اللقطة من لساني في كوكولي I'm going to try to speak a little bit quietly today because my throat's been uh, very dry so just let me know if you can't hear me okay the mic should help so بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم we have been talking about in the last four sessions we had together about the miracle of the Quran and you know I, I before we move on from that I do want to point out that that's something that everyone needs to kind of have a journey of their own, you know, just about like accepting, accepting that miracle and accepting Allah in your life and accepting Islam as something that every individual, that's not likely resolved by one person talking over four sessions. That's something that is a lifelong thing always, right? However, you know, I hope it's very clear where we get that belief from. I hope that I was able to at least explain to some capacity some things about Qur'an that are inexplicable when you compare it to human effort. I hope we were able to at least get that across. So moving on with the assumption that we accept Qur'an as a miracle, I want to now talk about the so what. Qur'an is a miracle, so what? what? What does that matter? What does that mean for my life? Yeah. And the one word I left you with last time we ended the fourth session with the Qur'an miracle sessions, what was the word I left you with that we said like, this is the so what? Accept Allah as the, as the Rabb. I, I defined it as master, accept Allah as the master. What we're gonna do today is a couple of things. If inshallah we can fit it in this time, may Allah put in my speech. Um, and you know, again, may Allah make it easy for me. But what I wanna explain to you are a couple of things. Number one, what does Rabb mean? Even we'll go into a little bit of the etymology of the word. What does it actually mean? What are the components of it? Stuff like that. Number two, what does it mean to you and I? And actually, we're not even going to talk about Allah as the Rabb today that much. Soon we're going to be talking about Fatiha, actually, you and I together over Ramadan. We haven't really announced that yet. But over Ramadan, we'll be talk- having a series about Fatiha. And there we'll talk about Rabb really in depth. Today, I want to just introduce the concept. And I actually want to leave Quran to the side a little bit. I want to go outside of Quran. And we're going to talk about uh, the history of psychology in America. And there's a reason I'm connecting the two. One concept that we didn't really talk about yet, that I, I, you know, soon we'll talk about it more in detail, is that there are ayat in Quran. Obviously, we call verses ayat. We don't call them verses. We call them ayat. We call them miracles, signs. There are ayat in Quran, and there are ayat of Allah outside of Quran. And the ayat outside point to the ayat in, and the ayat in point to the ayat outside. You're supposed to use your world around you even as proof of Allah. So today we're going to kind of get a tafsir of the word Rabb by looking at history a little bit, and you'll see where I'm connecting it inshallah, okay? So let's just jump into it. What does the word Rabb mean? I told you overall it means master, we'll get to that in a second. But Rabb also kind of means like five sub things that I want to go over. So when Allah, or it's not just Allah, by the way, there's, there's other types of rubs, like lesser rubs. Allah is the rub, you can say. He's the master, but there are other types of rubs and rububiyyah on this world too. So for example, the first definition of a rub is the giver of gifts. A rub is someone who gives gifts often. Yeah, he's defined by that. Number two, the maintainer. The one who makes sure something works properly. Actually, you know, like if someone's on life support in the hospital, they'll call that machine a type of rub. It's a qayyim. It's keeping him alive. Yeah, it's keeping him upright. Yeah. So, so far, the giver of gifts, the maintainer, the thing keeping you alive, the one making sure you're nourished, the one making sure you have everything that you need. The third one, the one who ensures growth. If you're, for example, a farmer, and you're taking care delicately a flower, you're taking care of whatever, a crop or something, you are the rub of that flower in that you're making sure that it's growing properly. And sometimes it's not straightforward, it's not just watering the plants and going away, but like making sure it gets enough sun, making sure that its trellis doesn't fall over on it, making sure no one steps on it, making sure no vermin get to it. Like really, really taking love and mercy into account if you're the rub and making sure something grows. You understand so far? These three are not easy to, uh, are not hard to accept. One thing I introduced you to last week that I need to kind of drill in your head a little bit. It is not difficult. We'll get to the, we'll finish this in a minute. It is not difficult to accept the existence of God. I'll repeat that. As much as our society likes to make it feel that way, 
it is not at all difficult. Muslim or non-human, we're talking about human beings, not Muslims right now, okay? It is absolutely not difficult for a human being to be convinced of the existence of God. That's not a big deal. Quran, by the way, itself doesn't really talk about the existence of Allah. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't praise the idea of like, congratulations, you believe in God. No, that's the default. In fact, this is a fun fact. Yasser Qadi has um, a, a lecture on this. Remember we talked about fitrah? Who can remind me what fitrah is? Yeah, the natural inclination that someone, every human being is like a software program that every human being, whether you're from here or you're from Africa in the 1800s or you're from Arabia or wherever you're from, whatever time you're from, every human being has this core functionality called the fitrah that basically means you incline towards not just Allah, but goodness itself. I should say not just goodness, but Allah himself actually, I should put him above, yeah? So that is what fitrah is. Did you know, a millennial, I'm guessing we're mostly millennials and Gen Z. Is it Gen Z after us? The annoying ones are Gen Z, right? I'm joking. <laughs> kind of. Okay, so millennials and Gen Z. Did you know that our default religion in America, do you know what it is? Agnostic. Kind of. It's not quite agnostic though. And it, let me call out first, it's absolutely not atheism, which is really interesting. Because again, that's what we're led to believe. We're led to believe the default is if you leave someone alone in America, we're led to believe that the default is atheism. And even statistically, that is far from the case. Atheism is a vast minority. They're like less than 10% of the population. The default for young people is not organized religion and not at all atheism. It's a sort of brand of agnosticism where they believe in a creator, but they don't have any idea on how to have a relationship with it. They believe in God, they'll even talk to him. They'll ask for things. When they're in trouble, they make dua. This is like literally statistical data, it's not even me just talking. But it just shows fitrah is there, you know? It's not some old timey thing. This is, we're talking about America 2020s. You know what I mean? It's there, it's pre-programmed to the point where it become, fitrah becomes the default religion, subhanAllah. You know what I mean? However, and they'll believe these things by the way, They'll believe I have a God, there's only one God, he takes care of me, I ask him for things, he give me, gives me things, everything good comes from him. No problem. Where does the problem come in? Where does the problem come in? The problem comes in on the latter two definitions. The latter two definitions, the owner, the one in charge. These are very loaded words, especially for Americans. And we're Americans, let's not make a mistake about it. That we, whether or not you come from the country or not, at the end of the day, you have the software of an American, so we have to deal with this, yeah? These two words are cringy to us. These two phrases, I see some smiles, because they're cringy. You know what's amazing about the word Rabb, by the way? And I want you to remind, just a gentle reminder, this is like how Allah introduces himself as this word in Fatiha, because Fatiha is introduction of not just Quran, but the, of Allah himself. Alhamdulillahi, Rabb. The first thing you should know after my name is this, I am this, I'm Rabb. Rabb is an interesting word for Allah to begin with because it not only highlights who He is, but who He is to us. It highlights a relationship. Meaning, if He's the giver of gifts, what are we? We're the receiver of gifts. If He's the maintainer, what are we? We're the things that get maintained. You understand? Everyone together, if He's the one that ensures growth, what are we? The things being grown. Here's the hard part. If He's the owner, what are we? We're property. If Allah is Rabb, and I'm, when I say Rabb, I want you to hear this word now, owner, person in charge, oh, it's not person, so the one in charge. If Allah is Rabb, I'm the thing that's owned. If Allah is Rabb, he's directly in charge of me. So the overall definition is master. You know, a lot of times you open up, especially older translations or even newer, they'll use the word Lord, but even Lord is like, that doesn't really fully capture it. You know, Lord is like, I am the Lord of this domain. Like that's, no one uses that word anymore. But master, you know what that means. Everyone knows what that word means. So Allah is our master. This is where people, when they hear about Islam, they'll even be convinced of miracles, but they hear the word master and they're like, ah, I don't know. Because that has implications on my life, you understand? If I accept Allah as Rabb, by the way, let's continue that. Like if he's this, we're that. If Allah is master, what does that make us? Let's continue to the extreme. If he's master, we are slave, not just worshipers. People like to say Abid is just worshiper. That's part of the meaning. But the main meaning is actually what? Slave. We are his property. We're a thing that's owned. I want to make it clear, by the way, 
because this has become a loaded word, slavery, especially again, in post-slavery America, yes, is a very loaded word. But that's what we're gonna talk about today, actually, is this idea of slavery, okay? Especially slavery to Allah. I wanna call out that this word, Rabb, in its Arabic, yeah, the word Rabb itself, the word Rabb itself is infused with love. Like Allah does not use this word, at least not that I know of, He does not use this word in Quran outside of, the, of the, um, uh, the, the situation of love. If he uses this word, he's talking about someone that he loves. If he calls himself, like for example, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, you can even translate this as, all praise and thanks are exclusively for the loving master of all, all, all people. The loving master. You can even translate Rabb as loving master. You understand? But you see where people can kind of have a dissonance. Because if I'm a slave, does that mean I can do whatever I want? Absolutely not. Does that mean I can even think however I want? Absolutely not. Does that mean things go my way all the time? Absolutely not. And you can see in a very consumer society why that can be very difficult to accept. And that's kind of the concept I want to introduce today. I want to actually not talk about Allah that much right now. We'll do that when we talk about Fatiha. Right now, I want to introduce this concept. Slavery is inherently oppressive. I'll repeat, slavery is inherently oppressive unless Allah is the Rabbin, uh, the Rabbin question. Any slavery outside of the slavery of Allah, oppression. And I want to make it even more clear. You can be a abd not just to a person. You can be a abd to your desires. You can be a slave to uh, you know, a philosophy. You can be a slave to women, to men. You can be a slave to an idea. You can be enslaved to money, to your job. Like, well, I, I, does anyone work in corporate America? Anyone else in here? Do you, just one? There's just three or four of us? Do you not see like certain people where they're just so utterly fixated and obsessed ab about their job that they literally do nothing else? They're abd of their job. When it calls, they come. Like I know someone that literally works weekends and night. If they're awake, they're working. And if people don't match them, they get upset because how dare you disobey the rub, <laughs> meaning the, the job, the company. It literally gets to that extent. The two concepts I want to introduce you to. Number one, everybody, whether you accept Allah as rub or not, everyone is a slave to something. Human beings cannot be unless they're a slave to something. Whether you admit it or not, or you use that language, it does not matter. Something is your rub. There's something that you, uh, you obey. Something that you obey, and if anyone questions it, you get upset. And we'll talk more about this, yeah? So number one, everyone is a slave of something. And number two, the only slavery that is actually freedom is a slavery to Allah, to this Rabb. This specific Rabb gives you freedom. Every other Rabb, you're enslaved and you're oppressed. And that's what I wanna talk about today, actually. Not Allah as the Rabb, but what does it look like when someone else wants to be your Rabb? What does it look like when someone else tries to force that on you? That's what I want to talk about today. To talk about that, again, it might seem a little bit random, but again, this is kind of an attempt of helping you understand Allah's relationship to us by looking outside the Quran and looking at other things in the world. The thing that I want to talk to you about actually is this guy. Well, not really his guy, but his nephew. But I want to start with this guy. Does anyone know who this guy is? Sigmund Freud. Raise your hand if you've heard of him before. Oh yeah, see, he's very, it's very common knowledge who he is. You're familiar then a little bit with his ideas. And you know that his ideas are a little bit out there. Even like the one or two things that you know about him, I see smiles and giggles because they, he, his ideas are really out there. What's really funny about Freud, he's considered the father of psychology. I'm a psych major, by the way. You cannot Google the word psychology without seeing this man's face with his Havana cigar and his dead eyes. He's everywhere. This guy is psychology. What's hilarious about this though, is that a lot of his ideas aren't even used today. They're actually debunked today, but he's still considered the quote unquote father of psychology. It's very interesting. He was a Jewish man raised in Vienna, atheist, non-Zionist, I checked, it's funny. But anyway, Jewish man, born in Vienna, raised in Vienna, lived mostly in Vienna in Germany. And he had some interesting ideas. We're not gonna really talk about him so much, but I, it's, he's kind of like the, 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 for, the background of this. So I need to explain some things about him. He basically said, and I wanna make it like, you know, just to kind of color it in a little bit. He, he lived through World War I, 
which World War One, if you can summarize it in a sentence, is probably the most one of the most traumatic events that history or human humanity has ever seen. Humanity out after World War One is not the humanity during and before World War One. World War One was obscenely terrible, and he lived through that. So he's thinking about psychology and even inventing psychological concepts while watching what mass murder. I mean, murder to which the scale has never been seen in human history. The things that we invented, the things, the tools that we used. It's as if we made a self-proclaimed, you know, purpose of humanity is to kill and be killed. That's what World War I was in a nutshell. Bloody, deadly war. No one was saved. And he was raised during that time. So how do you think he felt after World War I? Absolutely just fried. Yeah. How, what do you think his views of human beings were? Positive or negative? Sigmund Freud did not like humans. <laughs> no one we're talking about today liked humans. I want to make that very clear. You know, if you talk to them in the background, they call them stupid, they call them animals, so on and so forth. In fact, Sigmund Freud, you have to keep in mind, 200 years ago, during this quote-unquote enlightenment period, people had this idea that we don't need God anymore, we don't need the soul anymore, who knows if it's right or wrong, we should just focus on this world and forget the afterlife, forget God, focus on yourselves. This happened around 200 years ago. Sigmund Freud took this idea, put it in psychology, and basically think about the human being, it's both soul and body, but when you take away the soul, what do you have left? The body. And when you look at a human being and all you see is a body without a soul, you're basically looking at nothing but an animal, right or wrong. If you don't consider the soul, when you think of a human being, you think of it the same way you think of a bear or a monkey or a pig or a donkey or whatever, a dog, a cat. It doesn't, it's the same thing. It just has a bigger brain. That's really it. But really it's the same thing as an animal. So this scared Freud and people like him because if all people are, are animals with these deep subconscious desires, if that's all that they are, then when you put thousands of them in one place, that's pretty scary, is it not? It's dangerous. So look, when he saw a crowd of people, he felt fear. In his mind, he's like, these people, all it takes is one, one event and they'll kill each other. This is not our beliefs, this is whose beliefs? Freud's belief. Because in each one of these individuals, including everyone present, including all humanity for all time, each one of these people, all they are is flesh. And inside that flesh are just desires and emotions. And that's all they are. They're not rational people. Freud did not believe people were rational. Freud did not believe people were intellectual. Freud believed they are just an animal that wants procreation and to fulfill its desires. That's all a human being is. And you can see why a crowd would scare him. Because it is kind of, when you think of them like that, it is kind of scary, is it not? If that's all that they are, then who knows what they can get up to? Keep in mind World War I, right? Now, we're not talking about Freud today, but his ideas became extremely popular. In fact, even to this day, Freud is like the frame of reference. Even like America 2024, Freud is still kind of a frame of reference for psychology, understanding the human being. We, though, are going to talk about this guy right here, this dashing gentleman, his name is Edward, Edward Bernays. This is actually Freud's maternal nephew, Freud's nephew. So keep Freud in the background. We're talking about this guy though, okay? Where Freud was the father of psychology, Edward Bernays was the father of public relations. If you don't know what public relations is, that's fine. I literally have a psych major and they never taught me this stuff. Like, I don't know why this history is so hidden, subhanAllah. But listen to this. I want him to actually speak for himself. This is when he's older. Hopefully the audio works fine, yeah? This is when he's older, yeah? And he actually, like, I want you to hear what he says and we'll talk about it. Bismillah. So what is public relations? Public relations is a remarketed version of propaganda. Yes? So he's saying in this clip 
that the Germans in World War I had this department of propaganda. Propaganda just means you try to get a lot of people to think the same way. That's all propaganda really is. We're familiar because of everything happening in Saudi and everything. We know, we're familiar with propaganda. It's a way to get people to believe your side whether or not it's actually factual, basically, yes? He's saying, I, couldn't, I wanted to use propaganda, but I couldn't because it became a bad word, so I just renamed it. And I renamed it to what? Public relations. Public relations. He, re he renamed it. Yeah, he, he, you know what's hilarious? It's so interesting. First of all, if anyone ever renames things, be very wary of that person, whether it's a person you know personally or a person in history. If anyone tries to fudge words around, be very wary of that person. That's a dangerous person. Edward Bernays, as you will see, is a very dangerous man. He caused a lot of harm, a lot of death from his ideas. And we'll see this as we go. And we're talking about like even America nowadays stems from this man's ideas, yes? However, he basically thought of his uncle Freud, this idea that human beings, all they are are these desires, like these, these machines that have these desires and that's all that they are. And he asked himself two questions. Number one, can I use this to control people in mass? You understand? Like if I have that same group picture that I showed you of like a nation of people, can I use his ideas to control them and make them think the way that I want? That's question one. Question number two, can I make money off of this? The answer to both questions was a resounding yes. He made a lot of money and he controlled the way people thought. And this is what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. So what did he do? One example of something that he did, again, you have to keep also in mind the times, uh, you know, what people were like at the time. At the times, we're talking about like the 1930s or whatever, people, when they bought stuff, it's because it made sense to buy something. They didn't buy superfluously. They bought because it's something that they, want, that they needed. They bought because it made sense to, to buy it, yeah? So one, uh, one thing that he wanted to change was to make that, take that away from buying because it was logical, and from now on, you buy things because it made you feel good. Be a consumer. Don't think about it, just shut up and buy. That's what he wanted people to be like, yeah? So he started a firm of public relations and this guy, I think his name was George Hill. George Hill, who was the president of this company, which died, alhamdulillah, a while ago, but it is called American Tobacco. They were one of the first, or if not one of the first, one of the big monster companies of cigarettes at the time in America, okay? They had an interesting problem. And this is a really good example of how Bernays used to think and how it affects us today. You guys ready for this? George Hill went to Bernays, he's like, yo, I got a problem. I sell a bunch of cigarettes to men, but it's taboo for women to smoke. This is again, America in like the 20s and 30s. It's taboo, women don't smoke in public because if they do, they get shamed, you understand? So he's like, that's half of the country that I can't sell to. Women don't buy my cigarettes because it's taboo. Can you get rid of this taboo? And Bernays was like, I'll think about it. So he goes and works with a contemporary of Freud, like one of the people that Freud kind of taught, I think his name's A.A. A. Uh, Hills or something like that. Uh, but anyway, and again, I don't want to spell be too graphic because you guys know, I hope you know by now how Freud used to think and speak, yes? But basically he said that the cigarette from now on is not a cigarette. It is a symbol of male sexual power. A cigarette is a symbol of male dominance. So when a woman smokes a cigarette from now on, she's not smoking a cigarette, what's she doing? She's getting liberated. She's being empowered. And that's how you need to sell it to them. So look what Bernays did. First of all, does that make any sense? Logically, does that make sense? Not really. Logically, it doesn't make any sense. Does smoking make you more free? No, does smoking make you powerful? Absolutely not. But his job was not to make that true, his job was to make it feel true. Public relations, propaganda, you understand? So here's what he did. There was a parade, a yearly parade in New York at the time called the Easter Day Parade. Thousands of people came. It was like a documented event. People came and like, you know, news reporters came, all that kind of stuff. So what he did was he got ripper, uh, 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 upper middle class white women, suffragettes, what we would nowadays call feminists, but like specific wealthy feminist women wealthy women, because he wanted to show them off. He needed to be like someone popular, yes? So he hired them, told them to hide cigarettes under their dresses, go on a specific float that he designed, and he said, when I give you a signal, you light them up and you smoke on camera. 
And what camera is he talking about? He also hired a bunch of people, like uh, news people, like, uh, like news stations, and said, hey, I heard a rumor that these women are going to go on this float and smoke or, or, or light torches of freedom. He called them what? And what are we talking about? What, are, what is a torch of freedom? A cigarette. They're not going to light cigarettes. They're going to light torches of freedom. Pause here for a second. Do you see how he's like trying to get the emotions to be on his side? Because if an American hears a torch of freedom, they think of like Statue of Liberty, but he's talking about a freaking cigarette. But he's trying to manipulate the way that not only the women, but the men think too. So these people go and they have their cameras and Edward Bernays, when the moment was right, he told them, okay, go ahead and light up. They smoke the cigarette and they say, we are smoking so that we can be liberated. Now, Obviously, this couldn't work. I mean, that's a silly idea. Human beings are not that dumb. I'm joking. Sales went up like crazy. Sales went up like crazy for cigarettes. Women started smoking and it became the norm. Because from that point forward, if you're a woman and you're, a woman and you're smoking, you're not just smoking, you're liberating yourself. That's the idea that he put in everyone's head. That's the idea he put in everyone's head. SubhanAllah. Like this is like pretty nefarious stuff. And look at the headlines too. As a gesture of freedom, group of girls puff a cigarette as a gesture of freedom. You see how he's manipulating people, yes? Again, cigarettes do not make you more free or more liberated or anything like that, but it definitely made them feel that way after that, that point going forward. Does that make sense what he did? Now, a lot of corporations saw this happen. A lot of like major American corporations, okay? This dude, Paul Majur, he was actually the president and CEO of Lehman Brothers, which was like the biggest Wall Street hedge fund at the time was Lehman Brothers. They died during the 2008 collapse. What's really interesting is look what he said. After he witnessed this, he, he got inspired by Bernays and he said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before the old had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desire must overshadow his needs. Now, what does Paul Major care that people's desires overshadow their needs? What does he get out of that? A lot of money. The companies that he bankrolls, if they, from now on, if I, for example, produce, I don't know, like cookies, and from now on, people don't just buy one pack of cookie every time they go to the grocery store, but they buy five or six or seven or eight or nine or 10 not because they need it, but because they want it. If I can convince them to want it that much, I will get a lot more money, multiply my profits. So he's saying in order for us to get more rich, we need to convince people to follow their desires and not their needs. And it worked like a charm. A couple of things Bernays did, for example, is he would put famous women on the covers of magazines, this never happened before. Magazines should just be for information. But now, this by the way, this magazine was a client of his, Hertz International, the Cosmopolitan, you know, you guys own the Cosmopolitan, there's a huge magazine even nowadays, yeah? This magazine hired Bernays, like how do we sell more magazines? So he actually put on, this, is, this woman is a famous actress at the time, I don't know her name. She was also a client of Bernays. So he put the face of one client on the magazine of another client and everyone started buying their magazines. It was the first time he started seeing headlines like this, make your body glorious. These kind of headlines did not make magazines before Bernays. But again, he was selling them. He was ma- it's, you know what the process was? The process was stimulate desire, fulfill that desire, assume control. Again, make people want something, fulfill the want, and you control them. You become there. What's the word? Rub. You can become the rub. If you make them desire and fulfill it, you become the rub. Do you see how nefarious this is? This is crazy. Another thing he started doing, for example, you know, like those really weird long car commercials that you don't know it's a car commercial until the very end of the commercial. It's like a guy running in a forest or throwing something at a screen, and it's like Ford. And it's like, what are you Ford? This has nothing to do with Ford. What he's doing there is he's actually connecting the idea of like a big truck or like, you know, a really nice sports car to the sexuality of a man. He's trying to, when you look at the commercial, it makes no sense. But he's trying to talk to the animal inside you. 
So when you're younger and you watch a commercial, like, a, like an average American man, you're like, what the heck was that? I just want to watch SpongeBob. But when you get older, you're like, I should get a truck. You know what I mean? It convinces you. Even though the commercial did not sell you that this was a good truck or, a, or you know, that drives faster or carries more weight. No, it'll make you more attractive. You should desire it because people will desire you. That was his idea. He was the one who started putting, you know, like how you can't watch a movie without like Pepsi being like on the front of the camera. He invented that. One thing that he did, and by the way, notice how a lot of this is geared towards women. I want to call that out because a lot of what he did was geared exclusively to women, exclusively to women. Yeah. I'll give you two more examples. The first one, he used to host in department stores that hired him like Macy's and all those big stores back, even back in the day, he would host, um, like what are those called? Not glamour shows. What am I thinking of? Fashion shows. Thank you. Yeah. Fashion shows. Okay. But he wouldn't just hire anyone to run the fashion show. He would hire one of his clients, like this lady right here, who's a famous aviator, which I don't know how that connects to fashion, but people knew her at the time. So he hired her and basically wrote her a script that when you go up in front of people, don't talk about buying clothes that you need, talk about buying clothes that you want. And he connected it to self-expression. You should use clothes to express yourself. You should no longer use clothes just to clothe yourself, but express yourself. Are you anybody if you don't mind buy my clothes? Listen to this lady's speech. This really, like I watch it like 10 times and it freaks me out. As normal as it seems, it's just like, it freaks me out. Keep in mind, every word she's saying is not her words, but Bernays, the guy that we talked about. So listen to this. There's a psychology of dress. Have you ever thought about it? How it can express your character? You all have interesting characters, but some of them are all hidden. I wonder why you all want to dress always the same, with the same hats and the same coats. I'm sure all of you are interesting and have wonderful things about you. But looking at you in the street, you all look so much the same. And that's why I'm talking to you about the psychology of dress. Try and express yourselves better in your dress. It's as if you don't have a personality unless you buy my stuff. You are not a person unless you buy my stuff. I'll give you one last example. This idea took fire because it was making people a lot of money. As dumb as this stuff sounds, guys, like torches of freedom, you know, personality or psychology, as, as dumb as that sounds, it works. And it works on us today too. You know, I, I want to say something. I studied psychology in school. I'm a bachelor's in psychology. I didn't learn any of this stuff from my, my, my a bachelor, four years of psych. I didn't learn any of this. I didn't know who Bernays was until I watched this documentary. You know where I learned this though? I, rem I remember where I learned this. I was also a minor in business, or almost minor in business. I learned this in my marketing class. Marketing. The, the marketing basically is the idea of using psychology against a population. You understand? Being the rub of a person to control how they feel and how they think. I'll give you one last example. This is a really weird one, but listen. One other client of Bernays's was Betty Crocker. You guys know Betty, it's a big brand name even now. So Betty Crocker, for example, has those boxes of cake mix. You know what I mean? It's like instant cake mix. Yeah. And like basically the idea is like you put it in, you mix it with water, you bake it and you're done. It's like very, very easy. And it sold, nowadays it sells a lot. Back in the day, no one bought it. And then Betty Crocker, whatever, the CEO of Betty Crocker at the time went to Bernays like, yo, how come no one's buying my cake? It's so easy to use. I don't understand. It's taking care of hours of prep. It's making it so easy. Why aren't, people, why aren't women buying my cakes, my cakes in a box? So one of the contemporaries of Bernays started, he started thinking, if we can do group therapy for people to get better, can we do group therapy for products? So he started this thing called a focus group where he had people and left, he put them in a room, left them alone and would give them the product in the middle of the room and just step back and take notes on how they reacted and use that to sell them more stuff. It's like putting animals in a cage and you know, like a nature documentary, look at the glorious how you know how he goes after his prey. It was like the same thing without the British accent and they would write down notes to sell them more stuff. 
You know what they concluded from that thing that they did to the women, to the, to the women that, that wouldn't buy the product? He concluded they didn't use it because they were guilty to use it. Why would a housewife back in the day be guilty to use this cake box? Who can think with me? It's too easy. I didn't make it, the box made it. So now Bernays acknowledge there's a barrier. The barrier is what in one word? Guilt. How do you, remo- how do you manipulate them and remove guilt so they buy your stuff? They, literally, they added an extra step. You know what the extra step was? This step does not need to be here, but there's cake boxes, you don't need to do this. Add an egg. Once he put step one, pour in bowl, step two, add egg, they flew off the shelf. Because now the, the, the woman that, that buys it and uses it is like, well, this is my egg I'm putting in for my husband, for my household. So now it's my cake. Which is a nice thought, but very manipulative of them to try to get to that, to that, to that point, yeah? So uh, one more example, this is really funny. This is our, pre- uh, our past president of ours. His name is uh, President Coolidge. He was as popular as he looks. There's a reason you probably never heard his name. He was literally known as one of the most boring presidents ever. Like he was famous for being boring and dull and was actually a laughing stock of the American population. They would make fun of Coolidge because he's so stick in the mud. He'd probably be black and white even if he was here today, how boring he was, you understand? So he called up Bernays. Now I wanna call out, this is dangerous. Like it's one thing for a company to use Bernays' logic. It's another thing for what? Government to start using his logic. You see how we're kind of stepping into dangerous territory? So the White House called up Bernays like, yo, how do we make Coolidge cool? And Bernays, he convinced, I think it was 32 of his famous actor friends, actors and actresses, put them all in a straight line and put Coolidge in the middle. Notice by the way, he didn't just group them, he put them all in a straight line. Why do you think he put them in a straight line? Look at all these people. They make a line from here to here. He basically put the cool in Coolidge after that. Coolidge did not change his policies. Coolidge did not change the way that he spoke. He did not change the way that he thought. He did not say, I'm gonna lower taxes or, or do better welfare or whatever. But people loved him after that because why? He's standing next to my favorite actor. That is manipulative. So he basically did the equivalent of this. That's all he did. He put the cool in Coolidge. That's the same guy as the guy before. But to people, he felt differently about them now. He, they felt differently about him now, you see? So, um, and I, I do wanna talk about one more thing. This idea, before we move on a little bit, this idea kind of, it, it got more and more perverse, even after Bernays died. It snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. I'm not gonna give the big quote to you just yet because people are distracted. So listen, look, listen to me, because that quote is confusing if you didn't just, I'll, I'll explain it. It snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. People took the idea and added something onto it and another person took the idea and added something more and more and more and more until the, to, it got to the point where people not just, didn't just say for, you know, to satiate the desire, but to even specifically satiate sexual desire. So Zina became extremely popular in America because of his ideas. You understand where that came from? Again, human beings are nothing but desire boxes, machines of desire. If you fulfill the desire, you can control them. What is the most intense desire in a human being is a sexual desire. So they started saying that needs to be liberated, which this is language in our time, yes? You need to liberate that desire. You need to let people express that desire. That desire is a good thing. To suppress it is wrong. You are harming a child if you suppress that desire. Yeah, that's the idea that got sold to us through this line of thinking, which is really interesting. Uh, I was reading through this dude's Twitter. He posts amazing things. And I read this and I'm gonna read it to you and I'll explain what it says, yeah? Hopefully I don't lose you while I'm reading this. Well, there's words in here you might not know. I don't know, I had to Google too, so just don't feel bad, yeah? But I will explain what he's saying because it's actually very interesting. It goes back to Rab. I know it's a weird connection, but listen over here. What we are really talking about is a Gnostic system of two truths. The exoteric truth, the one propagated by the regime through advertising, sex education, Hollywood films, and the university system. The truth, in other words, for general consumption, is that sexual liberation is freedom. 
the esoteric truth, the one that informs the operations manual of the regime. In other words, uh, the people who benefit from liberty, quote unquote liberty, is the exact opposite. Namely, sexual liberation is a form of control, a way of maintaining the regime in power by exploiting the passions of the naive who identify with their passions as if they were their own identity with the regime with ostensibly enables them to gratify these passions. That was a lot of words, a lot of big words. What's this philosopher saying? This dude is basically saying that this idea of even sexual liberation, give the people all their desires. When it comes to the people themselves, like when you go to college and you learn about these from like your classes, or you go on Facebook and people talk, or even just talk to your friends, they would say things like, sexual liberation is freedom. Of course, we're Muslim. We don't not, that's not what we think at all. Yeah, that is not how we, we see that part of a human being, but that's how it's sold to us today. However, what he's saying in reality, when it comes to people in charge, they sell you that idea, but what are they really using sexual, sexual liberation for? A form of control. Let me put this in more simple language uh, to, and be specific. For example, pornography. And I want to have a day where we just talk about like Allah's perspective on this, just amazing. So we will talk about this stuff in detail one day, inshallah. But for now, let's talk about the aspect of pornography. Pornography is something so widespread, so easy to be addicted to, and so widely, uh, there's wide addictions with this stuff. People have to go to rehab for this stuff. It is serious, serious stuff happening with pornography industry nowadays, yes? If a man nowadays, and, and this happened, and go on Twitter, if a man nowadays or any person gets addicted to this stuff, which is this idea of like, I'm allowed to do this. I'm my own man. I have se- I'm my own rub. I have sexual liberation, whatever. Well, fill in the blanks. You know what these people, how these people talk. Yeah. When people think like this and then you come along and say, actually, that's not true. You shouldn't be able to consume what you want. You shouldn't be able to consume pornography whenever you want. How do these people react to you? Kindly? They get rabid. How dare you question my right to do this? So actually this idea of even, you know, sexually fulfilling whatever desire that you want is a way for other people to be a rub over you because you will defend to your death the right that they gave you, that your rub gave you. I'm not saying rub Allah, I'm saying rub yani like our government, for example, which by the way, makes a lot of sense. I and mean, not to get nowadays, but we ca- I want to make it clear to you and you know, we're Muslim, yeah? It makes a lot of sense why nowadays, the past 20, 30 years, certain ideas of sexuality have been shoved down our throats. Because if I can convince all of you, you can do whatever you want and anyone that tells you otherwise is a bigot and should get fired and lose their job, then this group of people will defend your political party to their dying breath and they in fact do, do they not? Do they not? Even when the person's committing, I don't know, a genocide overseas. It doesn't matter because he allows out the LGBTQ community to do whatever he want, do, do whatever they want. You understand? This is the idea of like, when you fulfill desire, you can be the rub. This is a Bernays idea through and through. You understand? Anyway, um, I want to give you a few more examples, inshallah. These ideas get extremely dangerous when they enter politics. It's one thing for a tobacco company to use it against you. It's one thing if a clothing company uses it against you. You following me? It's another thing if a president uses it, uses it against you, if a government uses it against you. And I want to give you two such examples of this, and then we'll take a short break, okay? So who, uh, well, this is a company called the United Fruit Company. Look how bright and yellow and happy it is. They sell bananas. Isn't that cute? They're a banana company. How bad can that be? There must be nothing crazy evil about this in the background, right? They sell bananas, right? Their symbol is literally a gun, by the way. <laughs> it's crazy. That, what are they called? United Fruit Company. United Fruit Company is a mega corporation in America back in the day. Mega corporation. I believe nowadays they call themselves Chiquita or Chica. Their symbol is like the dancing woman in a dress. Yeah, those people. They used to be called this, okay? The United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company was an American corporation, by the way, keep that in mind, it's a fully American corporation. However, they don't operate in America, they operate down here in South America, in Guatemala specifically. 
Yeah, Guatemala, where is it? I think this is Guatemala. This is Guatemala. But it, oh no, no, right, obviously right here. This area, yeah. They used almost all of the land of Guatemala. These people were basically the government. This, this American corporation basically ruled Guatemala. Not America, this company from America. The United Fruit, what are they called again? United Fruit Company. They basically owned Guatemala, covered it with banana plantations. Covered it with banana plantations. Everyone was basically, the, like imagine an entire country that's an employee of one company. Wild idea. That was Guatemala, Guatemala back in the day. Even like, you know, lands outside of the country they would own and they had banana plantations. And you following so far? Very wealthy company. And if you're rolling your eyes thinking, bananas, who cares? Guess what the most selling product in Walmart in 2024 is? Believe it or not, Wallahi, it's bananas. This is like the most consumed food, let alone fruit. That's why they're so cheap, by the way. It's like companies like this. Anyway, this is a big deal. This is a mega billion dollar corporation. Yeah, banana corporation is huge. Anyway, how do you think the, li the, the livelihood of Guatemalan, uh, Guatemala is around this time? Good or bad? Terrible. Terrible. You're basically a slave to this corporation. The, the corporation is your rub. You understand? I'm going to keep using that word. The corporation becomes your rub. And they, by the way, the, the, the company, United Fruit Corporation, they would put up dictator after dictator after dictator for decades. Dictator is a bad thing, obviously, yes, for the people, okay? The people got kind of sick of this and they voted in their own president. His name was, I think, Arbenz. President Arbenz. President Arbenz was basically saying, we want to get rid of this company. They have caused us havoc and death and sorrow for our entire lives and for our parents' lives and our grandparents' lives. For decades, they've been ruining our life. We're going to get rid of them and I'm going to take that land and give it back to the people. It is a very positive thing. And the people, are, he won in a landslide. They're democratic, by the way. They were, the democracy was abused, but they were democratic. So they obviously voted in Arbenz and Arbenz started the process of taking that land back and giving it to the people that owned it. That's awesome, right? That's good for the people, but bad for who? Bad for the business. That's bad for United Fruit Company. And who do you think they call for help? Bernays, Edward Bernays, close. Edward Bernays, the same dude that was playing tricks with the tobacco company, all that kind of stuff, okay? So they're like, yo, we need help because now business ain't booming no more and we might die soon. And you love business, right? I mean, you love business more than people's lives, right? So you got to help us out. So Bernays thought about it. This was around the 50s and 60s, I believe, or the 40s. Anyway, it was around the Cold War. Are you guys familiar with the Cold War or no? America has a habit of making bad guys. Right now, we're the bad guys. Yeah but we weren't always the bad guys. You know who one of the first bad guys of America was? Communism. Communism. Even nowadays in school, they communism is evil. Yeah. So Bernays, knowing that communism at the time, this, the philosophy of it, like they would look at the Soviet Union and be like, these people are evil and they want to destroy us, even though they absolutely didn't. Yeah. Bernays was thinking, I think I can use that. I think I can use that. So he started the task of making this look like this. Evil, communist. Guatemala, by the way, was not at all, they were literally a democracy. They were literally a democracy. They were not communist at all. They literally voted in a president, dude. There's no dictatorship, there's no whatever, whatever, whatever else, yeah? But he, here's the problem. If he wants to help the company, he needs to get rid of this president. Yeah? So he starts making news articles and convincing the American public that there's communism in your backyard in Guatemala, just south of your border. What are you gonna do about it? What if they get big enough to try to take you over? This obviously was not happening at all. You understand this, right? but he convinced people to be afraid of this new president because he's not a president trying to help the people. He's a what? He's a communist. He's the bad guy. So he starts releasing news articles. He starts even convincing our own government that they're communist and we believed it. You know what we did? The American government, literally, this sounds like conspiracy, but wallahi, this happened. The CIA 
literally, this is insane, by the way, I'm about to say this is insane. The CIA literally made a terrorist organization with the employees of that company and started bombing Guatemala. And they were saying, who's bombing Guatemala? Or why are we bombing Guatemala? Because they're communists, we need to liberate them. In reality, they're just trying to put their profits back up. You understand this, right? He was able to convince the entirety of the American public that when they were doing this, this is them bombing civilians, which at this point we're used to, yeah? Bombing civilians in the capital of Guatemala, like, the, 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 like around the house state, like the state, yeah? The state capital. When people saw this in America, they cheered because what they thought they were looking at was liberation. When in reality, this is just CIA and the company in planes dropping bombs on a civilization so that the president runs away. The president did in fact, by the way, run away. Our Benz ran away and they put another dictator in charge and they got their control back. Bernays was able to convince the entire world that somehow this South American country was just like Russia and are now communist and they should be destroyed. And he in fact destroyed them because he convinced people with emotion they need to be, you know, they need to be destroyed. Look at the news articles that came out of it. Bans communists over here, reds are jailed. It's insane. Can I show you a clip of this, by the way, really quick? This is really cool. Nixon was the president at the time. This is Nixon, our president at the time, yeah? And this is the new dictator that the company put up. You understand? This is not the president, this is the new dictator. Listen to how he's talking. We know you like bananas. That was a commercial after they bombed Guatemala, by the way, that they played. They're just shameless, shameless. We know you like bananas. May Allah destroy the law of me and Allah. Huh? I'm not saying that. I'm not going to get into that because, well, it gets worse than you think. But anyway, listen. Um, Bernays had a word for this, not just for this, but for all the things he was manip when he was manipulating people. He called it, this is the freaking worst phrase ever, engineered consent. Consent that I made up. Meaning I got everyone to be on the same page. I made them on the same page and then did what I wanted to do anyway. You understand this process? Whether it's for them to buy cigarettes or for them to, uh, you know, be okay with Guatemala being bombed. And you can, by the way, Yanni, copy and paste it to today. How do you think they're making people feel okay with Gaza being bombed? Engineered consent. Engineered consent. I made you okay with it. You know what's insane? I'm not even making these words up. They interview, I, I'm gonna give you the link to this documentary uh, in the chat, so join the chat. I really recommend, I think this is one of the many things Muslims in America need, you cannot live without knowing this stuff. You need to be aware of people trying to be your Rabb other than Allah. You have to be aware of this stuff. You know, one of the things Bernay's daughter talked about, her words, not mine, I'll just read what she said, yeah? She said, people might vote for the wrong man people might buy the wrong thing. They need to be guided from above. Guided from above from who exactly did she mean? The government, her father, whatever. But you see the, like, the, what's astonishing to me about that is the language guided from above. We literally believe our rub sends down from above guidance. Literally that's our language. And she's using that for just a dude who wants to manipulate people. They need to be guided from above. The same, the same words. We have to give them hidayah. 
We have to give them huda, nurun min indina, because they can't figure out for themselves. And that was literally Bernays' way of thinking. These people, they, they, they need me. They can't figure it out on their own. They need a rub to guide them. That's literally his way of thinking and the way of thinking of most of these people. I'll give you one more and then we will take a break. Okay, one more and then we'll take a break. Cook one, inshallah. Uh, just to show you that this is still how we operate today. This is not back in the 50s and 60s and the 20s. This is literally how we operate today. We talked about how people use like these focus groups. Remember what a focus group is? You put people in a room, you give them like a product, see how they act, that kind of stuff. People got the brilliant idea. What if I use this to build my voter base? Yeah. Literally, even till today, politicians do this, like Trump and Biden, all of them. They literally try to manipulate how people think and give them what they want. You understand? Bill Clinton, which is president in Yanni, our lifetime, I believe, right? Like in our, he's very recent, like in the 90s, he was president, right? He got elected into office as a Democrat. And he made a bunch of promises to people, especially the middle class, like upper middle class, really, and I'm talking about like white people, upper middle class white people, yeah? And he promised them a bunch of stuff like lower taxes and all these kind of stuff, like he, whatever. He got elected off of those promises. The people trusted him with it, he got elected. In his first term, he actually found out he does not have the resources to give people these promises. You understand? So the people that voted him in got extremely upset. And to, you know, basically kind of like uh, to poke back at him, right? they hired in a Republican Congress, right? So you have the Congress and the president. When they're not of the same party, the president can't do anything. Like when you're watching the documentary, he goes from looking 30 to looking 55 because he's so stressed in his first term. And he's extremely stressed. It's like, I'm not gonna get reelected. So he hires someone much like Bernays. His name was um, uh, Dick Morris, I believe his name was Dick Morris. This dude was a scumbag. Yeah. So basically he convinced Bill Clinton instead of making, you know, uh, uh, like laws that might help people ask them what they want and just give it to them. Ask them what they want and give it to them. You guys know what swing voters are? Yeah. Like if you look back at our data, even back like 20 years, there's like 30% Republican, 30% Democrat, and like 40% are swing voters. Like I might go either way. Yeah. So what he did was like the Democrats, Republicans, they made up their mind. Swing voters, I want you in a room and I want to know what you want. And what they want in the grand scheme of things was pretty stupid because they're not connected to like the poor. They're not connected to what's going on overseas. They're rich middle, middle class Americans. They don't know anything going on and they don't care what's going on. You understand? They just, they're now people that satiate their own desires and that's all they really ever do in their lives. They go to work, they come back, satiate their desires. That's all their, their life kind of became, especially by the 90s. Now listen to this. He put them in a room and they wanted things like school uniforms. Keep in mind, he's running for president. I mean, president does not talk about school. He doesn't care about school uniforms. He wanted school uniforms. They were like, oh, we want computer chips that you could put in your TV so kids can't watch pornography, which fine, good idea. The president should not be talking about this stuff. That's for someone lower than him, you understand? That's not stuff that he should be talking about. He literally made his campaign about these little frivolous things that they asked for and got voted in by a landslide. And I want you to actually see this clip from the documentary. Um, Keep in mind, Dick Morris is the one that convinced him to kind of do these kind of things. And you'll see in the beginning, he tried to dress him up in a way and like to, to make him look like he's into things that the swing voters were into. So take a look at the clip. Dick Morris also persuaded the president to spend his leisure time in the same way as particular groups of swing voters. He sent Clinton on a hunting holiday dressed in exactly the Gore-Tex outfits a group called Big Sky Families liked. The aim was to reflect swing voters' lifestyles back to them. He was not a carpenter at all, by the way. hated this approach. I would say, well, Dick, why have a campaign? This was the 1996 campaign. If all the president is going to do is offer up these little bite-sized miniature initiatives that appeal to people's uh, desires, uh, like consumers buying soap, uh, uh, V-chips that you could put in your tele televisions so you could make sure that your children did not 
have pornography and and school uniforms. Uh, why talk about them? They're, they're, they're so mundane and they're so tiny. And he would say back, if we don't do this, we may not get reelected. Uh, and I would say, what's the point of getting, getting reelected if you have no mandate to do anything when you're reelected? And he'd say, what's the point of having a mandate if you can't get reelected? Isn't the ultimate goal getting reelected? <laughs> but Morris's new politics were an extraordinary success. Clinton's ratings among the swing voters began to soar. And Dick Morris, along with the marketeer Mark Penn, took effective charge of making White House policy. That's terrifying. Did you hear what he said? What's the point of having a mandate if you don't get reelected? That's now the purpose of politics is power. I want to review with you before I, put, I give you like maybe five minutes, um, and then we'll do a quick thing and we'll stop. I want to review with you what's the idea here, this engineered consent. What is the idea here? Again, the idea is if we poke at people's desires, we make them desire things, and then we fulfill the desires, they will follow us wherever we put them. We can effectively be the rab, the one in charge. We can effectively be their owner even because they'll never question us. We fulfill their desires. This is the world that we live in today, especially the country that we live in today. Mind you, this idea spread all over the world, not just in America, 2024, but all over the world. Even the Arab world, the Muslim world, it doesn't matter. It's all over the place now. This is what the human being has been reduced to is a thing that desires stuff, and if you give it a desire, like a slot machine, it does what you want. That's how, that's how powers that be look at us. And this is, what, when I want to talk to you about Allah being Rabb, right? And I told you in the beginning that anyone else being a Rabb is oppressive. Is this not oppressive? And we eat this up, even as Muslims we fall for this stuff. As Muslims, we fall for this stuff. We want to fulfill our own desires thinking it's going to make us more self-actualized or some, something like that. And that is not at all the case. This is myself a call to Muslims to be aware of people that try to mess with your ubudiyah. Do not be a abd to anyone else but Allah. Anything else will make you lesser than human. Look how they see these people. I'm going to give you a break, like five minutes. When we come back, we'll wrap it up really quick, inshallah, and we'll call it a day. Miller, would you guys? And we'll say like 12.43, we'll come back, inshallah. Okay, you guys ready? Thank you, one second, one second. Freud believed that individuals were not driven by rational thought, but by primitive, unconscious desires and feelings. And Bernays believed that this meant it was too dangerous to let the masses ever have control over their own lives. Consumerism was a way of giving people the illusion of control while allowing a responsible elite to continue managing society. It's not that the people are in charge, but that the people's desires are in charge. The people are not in charge. The people exercise no decision-making power within this environment. So democracy is reduced from something which assumes an active citizenry to something which now increasingly is predicated on the idea of the public as passive consumers, the public as people who essentially what you're delivering them are doggy treats. So I want to summarize a little bit guys and give you guys kind of a thought experiment. So. We're talking about the word Rabb. And really the point I'm trying to make here is being a human being on earth necessarily means that number one, Allah is calling you to accept him as Rabb. But there will always be competitors trying to convince you that they or it should be your Rabb instead. In our day and times, this is the stuff that we're dealing with. It's like this invisible thing in the air people trying to sell you something, whether that's an idea or an identity or a product or a person, whatever it might be. And it's so easy to fall for. The Prophet ﷺ used to warn us of times where things would be so extremely confusing. And I think because of stuff like this, these are probably those times where you don't know what's true anymore. 
you see someone getting bombed and you think one thing, but one thing's actually, another thing's actually going on and you would have no way of knowing because of this thing of like public relations. So, and it reminds me of this other ayah actually, this appears twice in the book. Have you considered the one that has took his desires as a God? It's as if the society we live in is trying to convince everybody as individuals, you are your own, your own Rabb. You are your own Rabb. And Allah comments on this person. Because this person, there is no chance that they would ever see guidance. If they are their own steering wheel, they're their own guiding principle. Whatever whims, hawa'is like whims, whatever thoughts come into your head, that becomes your God, then you have no chance. You have no chance of accepting Allah's Rabb because you've become your own Rabb. It's like they can maintain, the people above us nowadays can maintain their Rububiyyah. They can maintain their Lordship, their masterhood by make, convincing us that we're actually the real masters when in reality, that's not true. You understand? This is the world that we live in. This confusing time that we live in. And when I watched this, I thought about you guys because I'm thinking every Muslim should be aware of what's happening to them, what's being pushed onto them constantly. Every American should, but specifically Muslim Americans. We're not in a, like, we don't have the privilege of not being able to understand our surroundings in this country, guys. We need to understand what's going on. And always when you say Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen and Fatiha, you think and you reconnect, do I really accept Allah as Rabb? Or is it something else? Has something else convinced me? And that's really a dangerous question to ask yourself. I might pray five times a day, I might wear this and say that and give this and do that, but have I really in my heart accepted Allah as Rabb? If he jumps, do I jump or ask how high? Versus if my employer asks me, do I just jump? If someone dangles a product in front of my eyes, do I just jump? Who really is your Rabb? Really, ask yourself. It has to be very clear who that is. You have to be able to really define it because a lot of people are gunning for that position. You understand? I hope I, sh- I made that clear with, with what we talked about today, okay? Um, and I thought, well, maybe we have time for one more little thought experiment, okay? I want to give you a thought experiment. I want you to imagine that you are the ruler of a nation of people. You are the ruler, you're sitting on the throne, you rule over people, okay? And let's assume you don't believe in Allah, you don't, you don't believe in the soul, you don't believe in any of this stuff, you just want to be the de facto ruler of these people. You have to do a couple of things, there's a couple of things that you can do to make that the case, okay? You can split them, un- split them up into groups that hate each other. You can trick them using these kind of tactics. You can fulfill any desire, any whim that they have so that they are too busy fulfilling their desires to go after who? To go after you. They're happy. Why should I? I I feel good. Why should I do anything right if I feel good? You understand?